Get Up Nation. I hope you're enjoying the Get Up Nation podcast on www.anchor.fm. As a podcast host on over 20 platforms, I really enjoy how easy it is to use Anchor, how Anchor makes everything I need available in one place for free, accessible on your smartphone or desktop computer. Go to www.anchor.fm now. In case you didn't know, Anchor has creation tools that allow you to record and edit each episode. If you're concerned about the distribution of your hard work, don't sweat it because Anchor takes care of that too. If you're considering becoming a podcaster, I would highly recommend Anchor as your choice to begin sharing your content with the world. What up, Get Up Nation? My name is Ben Biddick, the host of the Get Up Nation podcast and co-author of Get Up, The Art of Perseverance with former Major League Baseball player and CEO of Lurong Living, Adam Greenberg. Recently, I had the honor and privilege of speaking with United States Air Force veteran Colonel Don Taylor. He is the author of a book called The Quiet Heroes, Timeless Reflections of an American Airman. The book highlights the experiences of World War II veteran Technical Sergeant Irwin Itch Harrison of the United States Army Air Corps. We discussed the book and how the process of writing it caused Don to draw from his experiences serving in Iraq as the commander of a military hospital to gain valuable insights into honoring Itch's challenges and service. If you're interested in gaining a greater understanding of how servant leadership can transform one of the most terrifying and traumatic environments on earth into a place of health, empowerment, resilience, and cohesion by making peace with your own mortality and voluntarily risking one's own life in service of the broken, welcome to the Get Up Nation podcast, episode 24. Nowhere is resilience more valuable and important than when human beings decide to enter the jaws of modern warfare to heal and serve. Don shares how he honored the sacrifices and challenges of those who volunteered to go, recognized and communicated the supreme privilege of their duty to save and heal in a war zone, and sustained his staff's mental health as they faced the tremendous challenge of caring for those who suffered the most vicious trauma the world has to offer. He also reflects on those who survived prior wars and conflicts and how the need to better serve them creates his calling to tirelessly help these heroes every day of his life. Thank you, Don, for joining me on the Get Up Nation podcast. Don, you wrote in the book, We Are Defined Forever by the experiences that we live each day, and that honorable selfless service is the greatest reward in life. Will you share with Get Up Nation some of your background in the United States Air Force and why service is so important to you? You know, we first start careers when we're young. Uh, a bit naive, and we're not we're not certain what what our calling is or what we're supposed to do. You know, you're first motivated by just a job. I at the time was motivated by education, but I found very quickly that the military offered me not only opportunity, but over time I began to I just began to embrace the opportunity to serve and teach others because you have this ever developed over an entire career they develop your leadership skills, your servant leadership skills. And then you're required to mentor and kind of develop the next generation behind you. So over your many years of service, you begin to understand and appreciate the opportunity to serve and see others. I'm very much a servant leader in my own in my own right. It's what I do. I understand. I, I take full responsibility for any organization that I lead. But my particular one culminated in service in Iraq as the commander of a trauma hospital which was to me the pinnacle of service. I was the only non-physician to ever command a trauma hospital there. I learned quickly that my role was to protect 
physically and psychologically and emotionally protect the staff that were doing the, the most difficult mission in the war, which was taking care of the severely injured. And to do that, it required me to not only understand what they needed, but actually do that service. Little things like, you know, I would, I would mop floors or I'd help move patients. Even though I was their boss, they understood that whenever things got tough, I was going to be there to help them no matter what it was. So through that, I understood what it meant to serve. That made me, that quickly aligned me with Itch and his own sense of service and obligation during World War II and the reasons he joined and the reasons he served, knowing he was going to be at great physical risk. People make a lot of flowery speeches about things, but when you actually serve, you're taking noble concepts and actually applying them to a practical reality. It makes it impossible to leave it just as an intellectual concept. It becomes blood on a trauma floor. It becomes the person looking in the face. It becomes rendering medical aid to somebody who's trying to breathe and giving them the gift of life or saving what's left of a damaged limb or giving them an opportunity to lay hold of the, the best that life has to offer, even though they've been through a traumatic event. So what I really like about what you're saying there is you put your money where your mouth was, you took your values and your goals, and you invested to the point where you put your own life at risk. And that, I think, really takes people into a real space where that service is real, that connection is forced to be real. Nobody can just hide behind some flowery speech or some nice talks. You actually rolled up your sleeves and got into it. I just truly appreciate that about people who volunteer to go in when they could not do it if they wanted to. They have other options. But you chose to do that, so forever you'll have my admiration. One of the comments I made was that, you know, first of all, uh, uh, yes, we were at risk, and yes, we got mortared, and we rocketed every day, and we were in the middle of the war zone. Granted, we were safer than some of the kids who were outside the wire, you know, walking out in the communities or driving on the roads. But, but we were still at risk. People arrived mm -hmm. there knowing that they were taking a risk to save others' lives. One of my stories was that some of the folks were having some emotional challenges with just a level of injury and and some of the, the visual injuries that would occur. <clears throat> so I told the team, I said, you know, when these kids roll off the choppers and you're you're on the gurney and you're rolling them into the emergency room, and I said they, they, they're in shock from injury, and you roll them in there and you start preparing them for treatment, I said they look up at you, I said, you know, at that second, at that moment in history, you're the most important person they've ever met in their entire life. I said, and you have to prove you're worthy of that moment. If you're not authentic, they'll know. So every moment, I was reminding them how privileged they were to be there and the huge hmm. responsibility they had to provide that care. You're giving me chills because I served as a medic in the United States Army and deployed to Iraq as well. And one thing that I always tried to carry myself with during that deployment was I tried to be the best that I absolutely could be because I knew that all of my friends and the people that surrounded me and the people I served with, when they looked at me, they were thinking of themselves being potentially injured in a very severe way and that I would be coming to them. That channeled me to have much more commitment than, than I would have had just out of my own motivation because I knew as they looked at me, they saw themselves potentially injured or shot or, or, or whatever it would be, which then just drove me into an understanding that this is bigger than me and that I need to give them my very best. That type of leadership from a leader in a medical unit, that's powerful. I wish that that would have been 
more pervasive in some environments because that is just excellent to hear that message, especially for people who volunteer to go into harm's way. And when things go bad, it sounds like you and the people you led were there with an amazing mindset to do everything you could to help them survive. And not only that, but have an amazing quality of life. In our own lives, what other opportunity? How often do we get opportunities in life to serve at that level? To get the rewards from service at that level, that satisfaction mm-hmm. of, of giving it all, putting it all out there, and committing, you're all in. You're all in. And I find right now in my leadership observations from organizations now, people are not that committed. Their distortions of motivation are usually personal, or their motivators are shallow, usually self-serving. Mm-hmm. And and it complicates that, that sense or that duty of servant leadership. So there's some work to be done, you know, back home in organizations mm-hmm. today particularly in healthcare organizations. I I really sense a problem in leadership about serving those that count on you to save lives or enhance their lives. I just think that we have some work to do in the healthcare industry overall. During your deployment to Iraq, you described trying to find a way to remain calm in the face of the anxiety that was associated with potential death, severe injury during military service, which helped you be resilient. Will you share your experience with Get Up Nation as you wrote in the book about as you were deploying to a combat zone and your personal approach to dealing with that stress? You know, first of all, you have to sort of deflect thought. Knowing there were visual traumas, and Itch even talks about some of the, the shock he had and some of the challenges he had after World War II were just his exposure to injuries and his exposure mm-hmm. to his own loss. Well, I had a similar issue in Iraq where we knew as the team we were going to be seeing uh, levels of physical injury we had never seen before. There's just no substitute. Level one trauma centers don't even reflect what we saw over there. I had a couple of what I call commander's calls, but I had, you know, the hospital before we deployed a few weeks before. I did a presentation to them and I actually put images up of some of the injuries, a very closed door session. Mm-hmm. And people got sick. I had people walk out the back door to throw up and said, I need you guys to get your mind prepared for what's coming. So we started with that, with the visual adaptation or adjustment. And then I went, okay, now I'm going to challenge you all. And while we're there, you're going to enhance yourself. I want you to return better than you left. So I want to either emotional, spiritual, financial, or physical improvement and you just pick one of the parameters or all the parameters and we're going to we're going to work with each other and hold each other accountable during our entire deployment to improve ourselves along those areas i particularly you know worked on spiritual and physical and got in shape and worked out and as i walked through the hospital while we were there i asked people what are you working on how are you improving yourself So it became kind of a common dialogue around the people there going, yeah, I'm working on this. I'm doing this. I'm reading. I'm going to the services that I want to do. I'm I'm looking at financial help. I'm going to the gym more often. Well, that allowed them to to kind of walk away from the trauma in the immersion, get their mind off of it for periods of time, and and reflect on themselves. It was a way of kind of distraction and deflection. 
But in the overall, what I was doing was actually healing their brains to deal with the compartmentalizing or the resiliency from, from what they were going to carry the rest of their life. What I love about that is that it's absolutely proactive. I don't know how anyone could measure it. However, I can't imagine how much post-traumatic stress you prevented in your own staff. I know that there is more post-traumatic stress oftentimes in support services in the military because of that daily grind of seeing those patients come in, of seeing that horrendous trauma. And, you know, as as the diagnosis goes, if, if there's a sense of terror or horror and a sense of helplessness paired with that, then that just is the breeding ground for post-traumatic stress. And so for you to be proactive about that and to hold people accountable to invest in themselves, something in their life positive that they're engaged with and that they can transition that trauma into something powerful and positive, changing that mindset. I can't imagine how many people you prevented from having post-traumatic stress or a severer case of post-traumatic stress just by infusing that in your staff. Yeah, you and you don't know, I did get feedback from some folks after they all returned to their home stations that my rotation returned healthier than any of the others. Mm. They didn't feel they needed to go to counseling. They all returned happier. They, mm. they were able and more willing to go again. So anecdotally, I heard that it was successful. I carried it on further. Even just a couple of years ago, I built the Facebook page so that people could go in and post pictures or reflect. I even had, uh, I, I shared it here a few months ago on the site. I had a spouse of one of the members that we saved their life there. He had a triple amputation. His wife said, I think this may be the hospital in Iraq that saved his life. Would you share with the staff how, how much we appreciate it? And then she sends a picture of me with him on his motorcycle, and he only has one arm. How cool this is. So I shared it with everybody out there and sent it to all the folks on the team. And, and they were thankful because you never, you never get the rest of the story. That's the other part. Mm. One of my challenges there was to let people know that everybody that went through, and that's why I reminded them about, about their obligation to the patient, was all of these, they're all identities. They're all people. And they are somebody's cousin, brother, son, daughter. And yeah. you have to, you, you can't, it's a fine line because your sanity says, I can't commit to this. I can't, in, I, I can't get emotions into this encounter. But yet, mm-hmm. on the other hand, they deserve that emotional investment. There was a fine line between that, but we, we went, okay, we're going to have to work with them. So that's what I was trying to do is everybody, everybody had to find a way to treat, invest, and then divest without their own personal or psychological damage. You described in the book, there's a, there's a quote that says, the alternative of not going, the loss of honor, and the chance of not serving when called is more fearful to me than the risk of death. It gave me oh, peace, gosh. courage, and confidence all at the same time. For those who are facing any life issues or military service or they're about to deploy or, or they're in the middle of a deployment and they're listening to this, or even first responders who every shift of work that they go into, they face violent and dangerous situations. What guidance can you offer them from your experience as you responded to your duty uh, with that type of honor? Let me just say, I was an old guy when I went. <laughs> I'd been a colonel for a number of years and was 50 years old, and I fought for a position to deploy there. I wanted to. It was based upon when I was a younger commander, 
I had sent kids into the first inv- to the original invasion uh, right after 9/11, and I I couldn't bear the thought of not of not going myself if I had sent others. It was sort of just I, I was I was dishonest, and it was a part of authenticity and integrity that I had to fulfill. Mm-hmm. And then if mm-hmm. offered the position, my gosh, how could you ever say no? How could mm-hmm. you say no? And when you've been trained your entire career for this, you've spoken about it your entire life, doing what you do every moment for 25 years prior to that, it was mm-hmm. about preparing for that moment. How could you mm-hmm. How could you walk if offered? Right. So I I had to go, just like kids. You know, all the kids mm-hmm. in his community were going. He had to sign up. Yeah. You just feel this, this calling to do what you're supposed to do. The risk is there. You know the risk. You're taking the risk. And that's just the way it is. Now you can live comfortably. Okay, so if we had had a bad day over there, yeah, it would have been bad. Still wouldn't have changed my mind about the decision, though. Because it's a part of it, and you, you know as well going over, you know, there is a moment in route that you come to peace with it. You just come to peace with this. You go, okay, wheels are up, planes headed over. I mean, I, I may never return to U.S. soil again. And if that happens, mm-hmm. I'm just fine. Mm-hmm. I'm good with that. Once you come to that conclusion in your own mind, you're good. Then you don't have to live with fear. And the fear is what gets you in trouble or gets you hurt. So mm-hmm. those that had fear over there, I watched closely. I worked with them. I would take them aside. Some of them, you know, manifested in various ways, but I, I wanted to make sure they didn't crawl away and start dwelling on it because that's when people go off the deep end. So I would encourage socialization, not necessarily personally with me. I would have others go engage with them, more their peer group, you know, either same age or same gender to pull them out and to find distractions for them. And it And it worked. It worked because in the end they went, okay, this isn't so bad. And then, <laughs> you know, in the end of the tour, people are going, I'm kind of, I'm going to miss all you guys because you, you, you bonded so well as a team. The book that's called The Quiet Heroes, Timeless Reflections of an American Airman, stories of uh, Technical Sergeant Erwin H. Harrison of the U.S. Army Air Corps. You described the book as a show of gratitude for Erwin H. Harrison. Why did you devote so much of your time and energy to telling his story? His daughter is a friend of my wife's. She was visiting here one weekend, and she had heard that I had been in the military. And she goes, you know, my dad served, but dad wouldn't talk about it. She goes, would you mind talking to him? Maybe he'll open up with you if you share war stories. He was living in Florida at the time. So I flew to Florida, and He and I sat outside of a hotel for about a day and a half, and I recorded just the discussion. And my interview with him was more dialogue, but it started through just his kind of chronology of of his experiences because I found that he went over time, he recalled more. He was 88 to 89 at the time. And uh, as we went through, he began to recall deep details and I would pull him out of it, you know, because that's what I wanted to hear. Well, after mm-hmm. the day and a half, 
we ended the interviews, I said, Itch, I thought I was just going to be able to write an article, but there's so much in here. I have to write a book. You've got, you've got such a great little story. I mean, you're sort of like I said, I told him, I said, this is like Forrest Gump. Who, who has ever met those icons of history that you met during that short experience you had? You were 19 years old and look at everything that you experienced in a very short time. I then organized it through the chronology and then kind of did it in, in concepts or focus areas like courage and commitment and fear. And, and, and then I said, well, I can kind of wrap around some of my own experiences just to kind of tee it up because I didn't want to diminish his story at all because the whole book is his story. I want it to be about his service. And in a very tough time for a young kid who who didn't really know what he was getting into but entered it with an open mind knowing that it was going to be tough. And And then I found through the story that he had such a rich experience and close calls and and returned returned challenged he returned very challenged some hmm. things that happened to him he never even realized they'd happened or affected him psychologically and he suffered many years with just frankly being quiet about his story and so the last part of it, his daughter was able to read him the entire book right before while he was in the hospital the day i got the hmm. first printed copy of the book he passed away wow it is powerful. Some of these scars and people talk about physical injuries as we understand more and more about the effects of trauma and combat, how we realize the invisible scars and the invisible injuries and um, how powerful is it when we simply listen and go into that space, especially with fellow veterans, to go into that space and just share that and how much healing comes from that and how oftentimes the silence of it all can can wear on us and wear on those injuries. Is there anything that you'd like to talk about on that end of things? Part of it, I, I thought it was very healthy for him to talk about it because he was very proud of his service. All, most all veterans are proud of their service. Matter of fact, mm-hmm. that's usually the highlight of their life. There was something, they had status, they had title, they had responsibility. Mm-hmm. They looked good. They felt good. They felt they were, a, you know, kind of a select group of the population. But somehow after service, it diminishes. Like our mm. Vietnam veterans aren't very proud of their service because they were never recognized. The nation never recognized them for service. World War II veterans are just now being, rec- we're just now being recognized as they, as they pass away. And that's one of the comments Itch made to me. It says, why is there so much interest all of a sudden? Did it, was it just because I lived a long time? <laughs> wow. <laughs> and I got a little tickle, tickled at him. And huh. I said, but, but you have a good story. And your story is important because so few have lived it. And he kind of, he, he understood that and then was excited again to share, you know, his recollections. You know, the test of it all to me is, is, People cope with with difficult situations in life, whether it's a war zone or whether it's a death in the family or a divorce or whatever. You have to have a way to to be resilient in that process. You have to have a way to work your mind and recover from it, recover fast enough that it makes you stronger on the other end. And I don't think we teach enough of those skills. 
and part of it has to do with just life experiences. And we have a generation or two who, frankly, have had it easier than some others, and they don't have coping skills like that. Uh, even some of the young military today doesn't have – they just really don't have the coping skills that some of the other generations had. So I worry a little about it, and I think the leadership – has to understand and recognize it. And so when I go to get back again to the comment of servant leadership, a servant leader has to understand what that means. You have to adapt your style to to lead these folks into into a better place. Say, you know, whether that's physical or psychological safety or a lifelong memory. One of the little things we had was, you know, it was very common for us to have a young kid, I say a kid, young man or woman injured rolling in off the chopper, and the gurney right next to them is this insurgent, Al-Qaeda operative, who shot them in the in the ER at the same time. Mm. We did that. Wow. I had uh, a nurse who told me, said, I'm not going to treat them. Mm. I said, you have to. Mm. I said, "Here's here, we're going to make life really simple. Anybody that lands on your helipad, you do everything you could possibly do to save their lives. I said, because if you don't, I'm going to protect you from you because 10 years from now, you're going to look in the mirror and go, oh, my God, what did I do? Did I make the right call? I said, you're not going to have to deal with that because I'm not going to let you. I said, you save them all. God will sort it out later. You just save lives. Keep it simple, and that way you can look yourself in the mirror for the rest of your life very proud of what you did. Every day, every moment, you're proud. And it's easy to – it's easy to get on that slippery slope and, and make a bad call and regret it for the rest of your life. And, and part of leadership was, I can't let them do that. The book describes how these men on the B-17 bombers and the one that Itch served on, they were certainly afraid as they faced the realities of combat, but they refused to, to miss any mission and were intensely committed to each other as clearly you were to those you were leading. As you interviewed Itch about this dynamic, what impacted you about the commitment those airmen had in World War II and the commitment the service members in your deployment? In a common environment like that, you bond really well. Now, Itch's team was very close. His his air crew, they were very close. They bonded in Mississippi. You know, once they got their plane, they flew over. They flew almost all of their missions with the same crew. Even when they were shot down, one of the members was shot, was injured with the flak damage, and Itch was holding him when he died as they were leaving. But he was he was incredibly committed to that, but I don't think he ever really understood how that death impacted him emotionally for the rest of his life. And, and I can tell you, Itch was in touch with all the other crew members to the last day. The pilot of his crew actually passed away just a couple of months after Itch did. And his family reached out to me and, and bought a, a whole case of the books because they, they were interested in the story. But they were obligated to each other. It was a it was a bond that went kind of beyond family and and beyond friendship. Um, now from our from my experience, it wasn't quite the same because we had diversity in the organization. We were from fifty different bases when we arrived at that hospital. Uh, serving, and then some people went many times again, and the redeployments kind of diluted that that initial experience. 
But there's still some people. They'll reach out now and, and call. And it's interestingly enough, it happens more often now that we've had a, almost a decade since then. People become very reflective because they were proud of their service. They were proud of the service. They were proud of the connections and commitment. And so part of me says a little bit of Itch's book is about that one, but I still have I have a work in the future to be done to write about the Iraq experience so it's not lost. Uh, that's important because there's some there's a lot of leadership lessons embedded in in what happened there. The book that you've written here, how is that impacting people who have served in the war on terror? What sort of feedback are you getting, and what's really speaking to those who read it? Well, it's kind of funny. Some people, you know, they admire the leadership lessons, but you know, we're getting to a point right now where they perceive the war as negative and they kind of reflect their own personal views of the Iraq war on the individuals who served. I take it on quite ferociously going, you know, we we really didn't have an opinion about the war. We were medics. We just saved lives. If Americans were at risk, we should be there. We were obligated to be there to save lives. Somebody else needs to cast a judgment on whether or not we should have been there in the first place. Not our call. And I remember my last during my last month there, 60 Minutes arrived, and they were trying to – the TV show. They were trying to get negative comments from the team about the war, and they just – my team wouldn't do it. They just wouldn't do it. Wow. I, I said they're all committed. They're good. They're very good at what they do, and uh, they're here to save lives. That's what they do. They're proud of doing that, and that's what we'll continue to do hmm. as long as Americans are getting shot at. So it was um, – this day and age, I think we're getting into a, a generation where people are forgetting, frankly, the primary purpose. Uh, 9-11 was the reason. My fuse was lit because I was in D.C. and I saw the plane going to the Pentagon. That probably fueled a little bit of a, of a passion within me to, to, to serve. I was in the military, but I, but I saw it happen from my office window. And I knew at that moment, just somehow my gut told me that life had changed forever. So the service was, you know, I'd do it again tomorrow. I, I truly would. But not everybody quite recognizes what that level of service is about right now. And I'm afraid we're losing it as a society. This has been a great discussion about some of the finest qualities of, of human beings on the planet and certainly – it's accurate, as you say, that you felt such a commitment and had such integrity that you had trained for it. You put so much energy and investment into being ready for it. There is no way that you were not going to go and serve in that time when America needed you. I was in the show and asked my guests six questions. I delved into what makes them phenomenal. Would you be willing to run through these final six questions with me? Sure. All right. Who are you thankful for today? What I would have to say is I'm thankful for my parents who, who – and I'm going to say a few. My parents because they gave me a moral vector and a level – and a sense of integrity and, and a duty to serve. That, they, just, they just drilled that into me as a small child. I'm accountable. I need to work. I need to work to earn my way. Nothing's ever given to me, and I need to respect others. I need to respect – all others. And and I can tell you that's carried into even my own children. Both my daughters served in the Air Force. I'm very proud of that, and I'm thankful for my parents for kind of instilling that ethic into me. And what are you thankful for today? Health. <laughs> <laughs> and, 
And I, I'm thankful for, let me just say, I'm also thankful for my wife, who has teased me into another level of thinking, kind of transitioning from the military and comfort and safety and security of that space into more of an entrepreneurial space, which is uncharted waters for me. She's teaching me to test my limits. I would have never written that book without Judy's push. And the next book that's in me is probably also because of Judy's push. Excellent. I can't wait to read your next one. How do you fuel the fire within you? It's sort of just there. It, it flames up every once in a while. But I, but I reflect back on, if not me, then who? Who's going to keep the passion? Who's going to keep caring? Because I can tell you, as I look around the system, a lot of people don't care. Or they pretend to care for all the wrong reasons. And we could go into an entire hour discussion about the Veterans Administration, but I think they've lost their I think they've lost their purpose. I do. I think as an organization, they've lost that that core mission of serving and caring for veterans, and that bothers me. So when I see a need, it turns into a calling, and it fuels my fire. Some my friends asked me, said, "Well, when are you ever going to retire and rest?" And I said, "When I no longer care." And I'm not so sure that's not going to happen until I drop dead. What are you doing today you never thought you could? <laughs> Wrote a book or at least <laughs> assisted itch in writing a book. Uh, all I did was carry his voice. But, you know, to take that leap was a big deal. Now I'm even considering developing a speaking circuit on not only servant leadership, but what I call active servant leadership about being present, mm-hmm. about being involved not just existing on the organization, but becoming the heart of an organization. Um, Because I think that is missing right now. Judy drugged me to a mastermind last week in in another country, and I got to spend a little time with a nationally recognized speaker named Les Brown. And, Excellent. And he, he got me a little excited about the opportunity to speak. He goes, you have stories. Stories teach lessons. Okay, i got to think about this a little bit. <laughs> They're stretching my limits right now. Based on everything you've told me, and you certainly have stories that America needs to hear. I can't wait as you unleash these stories on us. How can people purchase a copy of your book and learn more about you? There's a website, www.thequietheroesbook.com, or go to Amazon. You can find it there as well. Uh, Google Quiet Heroes. You may have to, or just type in search on Quiet Heroes. You may have to put in Don Taylor as well, and you'll find me. Thank you, sir, so much for your time. And I want to thank you for the interest and also thank you for your service. It's not recognized often enough. You're doing a good thing. I've heard and seen what you've done for the Greenberg, and I just want to thank you for all of that. It's my honor, sir, and uh, it's absolutely enjoyable to meet people like you um, who I have the utmost of respect and admiration for. Thank you so much. I love speaking with men and women who make peace with their mortality in order to truly live. Colonel Don Taylor, United States Air Force veteran, who not only saved the lives and consciences of those he led, but also extended that gift to some of America's greatest enemies in order to communicate and demonstrate the heart, soul, and character of a nation that values life lived free of terror. As he begins to share his story and his lessons of servant leadership, He's infusing and resurrecting the soul and identity of the American healthcare system, reorienting it to the miracle of human life and the privilege that exists in sustaining, enhancing, and invigorating it. 
it's exciting to see leaders refuse to allow a system intended to heal, soothe, rescue, and save to reduce itself to anything less. Get Up Nation, what pocket of pain are you seeking out to improve with humility, commitment, integrity, and service?